0: According to Andy Williams, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but would the Tudors have agreed? With Christmas just around the corner, I thought there was no more appropriate time to have a discussion all about how the Tudors spent this time of year. From what was eaten to how gifts were exchanged and to how guest lists were drawn up, this episode has it all, and I am thrilled to say that I am joined by Dr James Taff, historian and author, whose most recent book, Christmas with the Tudors, provides the basis for our discussion today, so pop on your comfies, get a large glass of mulled wine in hand, and listen to how the Tudors spent Christmas. Welcome back to the Tudor Chest podcast, episode 18, Christmas with the Tudors, with Dr. James Taff. Welcome to the Tudor Chest podcast, Dr. James Taff. It's lovely to have you come on to the show. And it's a very topical conversation because we are here to discuss your new book, Christmas with the Tudors. Before we get into the discussion, if it's okay to introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your background.
1: Of course. Yes. So hello everyone. Um, my name is James, and uh, I'm originally from Birmingham in the UK, though I'm based in the north of England now, where I moved to study about four or five years ago for my PhD. Um, I was very fortunate that uh, Dr. Natalie Mears at Durham University supported my application for study because once it was successful, she couldn't get rid of me for several years, which was, uh, it was my pleasure to work with her, really. But I was on the next train and have been stuck here ever since. Um, but I'm now in the neighbouring Newcastle rather than Durham. And um Well, to be honest, it all sort of began at a very young age, because I one of my earliest memories is when my mom, trying to help me with a history project, um, printed out a load of portraits of the six wives of Henry VIII, and we had to stick them and on a poster and sort of write a little bit about each one of them. And that I mean, I don't know if you remember, like it was like this, got, do you remember Partners? I don't think Partners is a thing now, but it's Ryman's now or something. That's for the UK listeners anyway. It was this massive bit of yellow car that you could only get from this specialty art shop. And I remember thinking it was just a daunting prospect. But obviously, when you're a young kid, your imagination went wild. And um, I just loved learning all about the six wires, loved creating this very sort of visually striking project. And then to be honest, I've always, I always loved history through school and through college and um but it never really clicked for me until I went to university and I got a chance to choose my own topic because there are many areas of history. I'm
0: not interested in it, um, but well, the yes, Tudors well. is my favorite. I'm very much the same. I think there's, a, yeah, there's interesting that people assume people assume you must love all history. And I absolutely don't. <laughs> that <laughs> is a relief to hear. I always
1: feel a bit sad to admit that, but I don't want to learn about the Hussites. I'm sorry. I just. Oh, how many modules I had to do at university where I just gripped my teeth and just got on with it. But then when I got to choose one, I got to choose, um, I studied the fall of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard and it was like a gateway drug. I just was away then. I was totally lost. I thought this is going to be something I want to do with my life because it was such a difference from having to have the discipline to sit down and learn and study something that I really didn't care about and then suddenly being genuinely absorbed by something. So once
0: I discovered Anne Boleyn, it was, it's over. One of the things I've really realised, I've always loved Anne Boleyn, always been my favourite, favourite historical figure. But I never realised just how popular she is until I launched the Tudor chest and the stuff that I do. I mean, she's she is undoubtedly, I think, the, the Tudor poster girl, isn't she? Everyone's fascinated by her. She is.
1: And I I. whenever I talk to people, so I, people love to say, oh, enough Anne Boleyn. You can never have enough Anne Boleyn. And I want more <laughs> Anne Boleyn in every corner of my life. Um, and I, I understand what they mean, because we don't need another biography of Anne Boleyn. We don't need another very standard unit of book about Anne Boleyn. But there is more to say about her. And Ooh. for as long as she's getting people interested in history, why not?
0: Absolutely. Funnily enough, I actually had a very similar conversation last week with Dr. Elizabeth Norton, and because I was talking uh, about yeah. the fact that I'm I'm really excited about the upcoming film Firebrand, because it's not about Anne Boleyn, it's about Catherine Parr, it's about another yes. of the wives, and it's a wife being given her own whole film, and that's. You know, as I've made clear, I love Amberlynn, but uh, she definitely does tend to dominate quite a lot. And, you know, the other wives were just, well, not all of them, but there are <laughs> others that were. <laughs> I think we can scrap Jane Seymour, but. Um, oh, I'm a, I'm a Jane Seymour. Um, no, I'm not.
1: I can't even pretend to be. And there's just a few no, moments um, of Jane where I find her genuinely fascinating. But otherwise, yeah, no. Um, no. But I agree. <laughs> Catherine Parr, she has a story which is worth telling, and it's fantastic.
0: The book that it's based on is fantastic. A couple of questions I always like to ask guests, if you could pick a single moment from history to go back and witness, what would it be? That is a great question. I have to be honest, I haven't really thought about it
1: very much, but the first thing that came to mind was the late night card games between Henry VIII and Richard Hill, his sergeant of the cellar. Especially during the turbulent late 1520s and early 1530s, I'd like to imagine that the king and his servant were quite familiar and friendly. And it is unlikely that they played cards in silence. What did they talk about? Who did they talk about? I am particularly interested in that dynamic between a master and mistress or and their servants. But I bet to witness their exchanges would
0: be quite eye-opening, especially during those years. Wow, that's so, I've never had an answer that was that niche i suppose it's a bit niche <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well you know like mean, most, most people say oh you know i'd love to see amblyn's coronation all right but, but that's ah, well it's a, it's a good answer it's a good answer absolutely once you've seen one coronation you've seen them all actually maybe not
1: mm-hmm. amblyn's would be interesting because we don't really know how badly she was received really how yeah. far we can believe those accounts so that's actually a good answer that one i like that one
0: do you have a controversial tudor opinion i do Perhaps my most controversial
1: Tudor opinion would be that Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, gave evidence against her husband, George Boleyn, and her queen and his sister, Anne Boleyn. The general opinion now is that Jane was an innocent victim and was basically framed by the people who said that she gave evidence. But I would argue, as I have done in my first book, Courting Scandal, that Jane was quite far from the hapless porn that people are making her out to be now and certainly we know she gave evidence against her husband and sister-in-law and also that she had very much had a hand in determining her own fate in 1540s in the 1540s with the catherine howard affair and even that on my mind as i'm saying it it's not even an opinion to me it's an interpretation and it's based on evidence and i very very closely and considered the evidence before making that interpretation but in spite of all that the my take on Jane remains a little bit more controversial than the one accepted today.
0: I did think I bet you're going to say Jane Villain. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't not say Jane Villain to be honest. Yeah, because I must admit I am on the other side of the fence at the moment. Well, you can stay over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will also be. I haven't read. I haven't actually had a chance to read your book yet. So maybe I will be convinced. Uh, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure that the arguments put forward are going to be very well considered. So I'm curious to see what your evidence is for that, because at the moment I am of the other opinion, but we shall see. Do you have a a sort of a Tudor misconception that you would love to change? I'm going to stick with Jane here. The main issue for me with Jane
1: Villain's reputation right now is we've gone too far in rehabilitating her and in reassessing her. So whereas before, perhaps we had too, too much of a moral, judgmental tone in the 19th century, for instance, about how we saw Jane, I think now we've gone too far in trying to vindicate her. And a lot of, I say one biographer in particular, but many followers of Tudor history want us to sympathize with Jane, want us to admire her and to like her. And it's kind of inexplicable to me. I don't really know why. I mean, personally, the evidence that has survived about her says the opposite. I don't particularly like the woman that I've written about. I find her fascinating and brilliant, but not likable. And the perception that I would want to change, or rather the misconception, is that she was now a scapegoat or a victim of circumstances beyond her control, because that perception has wider implications then for how we understand women and their role at court and their involvement, their agency, their power. And I mean, just in general, rewriting history for the sake of revising it is dangerous. But there are narratives that need to be revised. I just don't think that Jane's narrative needed to be revised too far. Definitely, we can do away with moral and judgmental tones. But the historians who wrote about her many, many years ago were not lacking in reason. And most importantly, they had access to sources that we do not. And that's kind of the main issue, is that we're trying to come up with a new interpretation of a woman based on... Not evidence, but imagination, dare I say it.
0: What's interesting, I think, though, with Jane Boleyn, is whilst there has been this this shift in the way that people are perceiving her, that shift has definitely, to the best of my knowledge and belief, not been reflected in film and television. She continues ah, that's probably to, true, yeah. <laughs> she does continue in film and television to be very one note, sort of arch villain. I mean, in particular, you know, her depiction in both Wolf Hall and even worse in that three-part Anne Boleyn drama on Channel 5, that depiction of Jane Boleyn was just so, such a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was, was going to say really a bit one-dimensional, but yeah. Absolutely. One-dimensional and a bitch. Um, yeah, but there, I'll give you that. It does seem that that the, the the rehabilitation of Jane has not made it onto screen, which is quite interesting.
1: You're absolutely right. Yes, and there are. I actually think the Wolf Hall depiction is good, as in it's very accurate. Obviously, it's not about Jane, so we don't see other elements of her life, like her family, other mm. thing, other people that she knew. Admittedly, even that evidence is scarce. So, in a way, the fact that she's becomes this kind of storytelling device is a, is a good thing because at least she's got a role and she's got a name and she's in. I like that she's in Wolf Hall at all. I mean, to be honest, yeah. and also, unfortunately, her relationship with Cromwell is not necessarily that clear in the evidence, but there is enough, I think, to say that Jane was a power player at court, and that's the depiction that she has in Wolf Hall. In my opinion, that's quite accurate, very impressive, very sensitively handled. I hope the um, second part of Wolf Hall and the, next, the sequel that they're filming now is going to be just as impressive. And But you're absolutely right, in a way, although the generally accepted opinion now is that she was a victim, that she was innocent, that that is not shown on television or film, absolutely.
0: Well, now we'll jump into the, the sort of the bulk of the episode, which is, as I said earlier, very topical with Christmas Around the Corner and your book, Christmas with the Tudors. So Christmas with the Tudors is your second published book, and you have a third book coming out, Serving the Tudors. So with this in mind, it feels like you've almost made quite a deliberate decision to look at the people that are sort of secondary or tertiary to the to the Tudor court rather than the king or the queen themselves. Was that quite a concept? conscious decision to, to explore the lives of people that are less explored. Yes, you're absolutely right. I'm glad
1: you picked up on that because it is no coincidence that I like to focus on servants, courties and counsellors in particular. I find them, anyone near the Crown, particularly fascinating subjects. And not only in studying servants in their own right, but I think studying the court and their relationships with Tudor kings and queens casts a new perspective on people who we think we have all the narrative that we we could possibly have of Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. But actually, we don't necessarily see in biographies them as masters or mistresses of the household. So surrounded by men and women who serve them, these were the day to day relationships that they had. And were essentially their family. The servants need more attention, I, I, I believe, and more attention than just me, because I am only one man and I only have only so much in my toolkit. You know, I would love to see more scholars working on servants in general. But actually, Christmas with the Tudors was meant to be a break from working from serv- on servants. This next publication, Serving the Tudors, is, is much more it's, it's it's very heavy going and I'm trying to get as much material packed into it as possible and it feels like hard work sometimes whereas I wanted this mm. to be a nice break light and humorous but actually I should have known my interest in it probably always was the fact that servants were very much present and important to Christmas Christmas is an excellent case study to understanding the role of servants they would not have had Christmas at the Tudor court without them and Other than the the fact that I love Christmas and I love the Tudors and it was just my own curiosity, I think the fact that the servants could be brought to the forefront again is one of the motivating things that made me want to write it. And then once the material was there, I was just, I was really keen on sharing it. So yeah, definitely a servant specific book it ended up being, but yeah.
0: With Christmas with the Tudors, so your second book, it is structured around six chapters with each chapter exploring a different facet or an aspect of The Christmas celebrations the first looks at what I think practically everyone at one time or another will face at Christmas which is around the tyranny of producing a good guest list so who's in who's out and the like um you start with the Tudor royal family and, and who they would typically celebrate with which surprisingly is very seldom each other can you discuss what you discovered here and and why the Tudor royal family were not often together Yes, absolutely. So, you as you mentioned, it, the
1: first chapter it's all about this guest list who's coming for Christmas. And I was surprised how much I was able to find in terms of this kind of material. It was mostly collections of personal letters and invitations to uncover interactions between kings, queens, princes and princesses at the Tudor court, yes, but also nobles and upper gentry in their great houses and then to a lesser extent sort of more local families, friends and neighbors. But Thinking about the court, the sovereign king and queen and their consorts presided over festivities at the Tudor court. So they were together. But Christmas itself wasn't really a family affair. I mean, their children were often dispatched and stationed somewhere else in the kingdom. And the sources don't resemble Christmas as we would have it today. And a couple of examples off the top of my head. Just the fact that when they had Christmas dinner, they didn't necessarily... Henry Seventh and his wife, Elizabeth of York, had it in separate chambers with different people. And when they exchanged presents, it wasn't like a cozy sort of gathering in, in one chamber. They sent their servants to carry them on their behalf. So the, it's not Christmas as we understand it, although I imagine a lot of good cheer and sort of warm feeling. It wasn't as warm as we would expect, maybe. And so that's why I don't really see the Tudor court as being a family affair. It's much more about less strictly with family and more so with courtiers and counsellors and servants, all and particularly visitors like ambassadors and dignitaries too. Royal protocol would have dictated that they had to meet certain functions like hospitality and generosity, as did noble men and women too. They opened up their houses in the same way that the Tudors opened up their courts for neighbours, tenants and poorer folk to enjoy Christmas and to share in the cheer really and to be fed and shouted for a few days. and really. The ones that probably most resemble our Christmases were probably the lowest levels of society, less Mm. guests on the list, more intimate gatherings, not so constrained by these obligations that they have to meet at Christmas.
0: So there's a couple of examples in the book of what were relatively minor members of the court and just the dramas that they would put themselves through, that they would get themselves into in trying to snag big name attendees. And one of the stories that I really just thought was really comical was Sir Philip Hobie and right. his attempts to, <laughs> and his attempts to get Sir William Cecil to join in his Christmas party. Can you just tell us about this, what this story was and, and how you discovered it? Because it is he is a name that I've never heard of, you know, until now. And his letter is very extra I mean he's basically saying (laughs) unless you come I'm gonna burn you alive it's pretty (laughs) it is outrageous it really is um
1: I mean he is a man after my own heart hobby because he the dark humor there I just love it I that made me laugh I mean essentially what it is is he writes a letter to sir william cecil and says you will be coming to my christmas with your wife and this is the company i want to keep and you don't really have a say in it and cecil tries to excuse himself and say actually no i'm probably i might make an appearance but i'm not going to come and stay for christmas essentially and hobie is very much not going to take no for an answer and sort of threatens I mean you know it's not a threat because it was clearly intended in jest but he says to (laughs) cecil that he and his company are going to come to cecil's house and burn him in his house burn him alive and it's it's insane (laughs) but it's it's clearly a joke yeah it is extra i mean I, i i burst out laughing i thought it was brilliant and that's one of those sort of little snapshots where particularly the christmas material where the tudors come across a little bit more human and I should say, it's it's a it's not it's a relative unknown. I think some people will know Hobby, but I I only really know him as a sort of an ambassador at a different court, and that's kind of where he comes through in the source material. But that letter that he sends to Cecil is extraordinary. His whole personality is on show, and sort of the interest in having Christmas go off without a hitch with great company is really well reflected in that letter. But yeah, I I, I love that too. It's probably my favourite
0: anecdote in the book, Chapter Two of the book definitely looks at something. It looks at something that we can definitely recognize is still very important to this day, which is food and drink. So if you could give us a sort of top line view of what sort of foods were typically served at the Tudor court at Christmas.
1: Yes. So there were many foods which were considered more special to the Tudors, which they would have had on their Christmas table. The main one that jumps out is the boar's head which was sort of, as I think the quote goes, bedecked with bay and rosemary, and it was a decorated centrepiece. So although it was sort of elaborate, it was still eaten as well. It, It was something that they actually ate. Venison, too, was very highly regarded by nobles, and made more special by the fact that it couldn't really be purchased it had to be either gifted or hunted one of my favorite well one of my favorite collection of letters is the lyle letters but one of my favorite letters among that collection is when um the lord lyle writes to the lady lyle saying i pray you beg some venison against this christmas and it's just like yeah i can see what you mean He, he just wants to make sure that he gets all the rich foods that he wants and you know his wife is sort of responsible for making sure that the pantry is overflowing with all of that Other accounts, household accounts, probably the most important accounts that I found were the Sir William Peter accounts, which were essentially a long list of everything that he served on his Christmas table, which is great for a historian because you just want to know exactly what was served. And you think, well, why did they record that? But they did. And it's great. Then you start reading and you realize it's basically 12 different types of poultry and you get pretty bored halfway through the list. And you think, "Okay, I get it. You really liked poultry, but what else are you serving? And um, (laughs) fortunately, they also had some apple pies and some pear pies and things like that but i think the food can really be summarized by meats and sweet treats lots and lots of meat lots of sweet treats and there are some sort of casual references like the diarist um the london merchant henry Mashin. he makes a comment about a christmas banquet he goes to and i think he says something like there were dishes of spices and fruit marmalade and gingerbread and comfits and so it's clearly two-handed sort of food that's rich and savory and elaborate for the sake of it being um more sort of rare i guess and then there's the sweeter sort of treats that we might actually associate with christmas today um but probably more at higher levels of society the most important thing was the amount of food just mm. massive amounts of food you when you read the accounts it's like that is insane do you really need that much but of course they did because they were opening their courts and one year i mean henry the served 200 dishes in one one meal. So, yes, lots and lots of food. Are there any Christmas Tudor treats that we still eat to this day? The one that jumps out to me is the mince pie. Yes. It's sort of known as a Christmas pie to the Tudors. They don't really call it a mince pie. One particularly cheerful man sort of says in 1599 something like, This time of the year affords no other news than dancing, plays, and Christmas pies. And I thought, Yes, that's one of the most important things of Christmas, I'm sure, your Christmas pie. Their mince pie is are not as we know them today the mo- the main thing was that they were made with sort of shredded and leftover meat like mutton and th- that was combined with fruit and peel and zest and sugar and lots of spices there is an old english recipe in the book i have left it in the appendix just in case anyone is feeling particularly ambitious this year and wants to make a tudor christmas pie um and there are some instructions left by a tudor gentlewoman on how to make the filling i have attempted it once it was hideous it was just disgusting, if I'm being honest. But I think it's because my brain says this is going to be sweet. This is going to be like a mince pie, just like one from the supermarket. And of course it's not. It's not the Mm. same thing. It's more of a sweet and savoury mixture. So I would recommend your listeners give that a try
0: if they fancy making their Christmas (laughs) a little bit more tutory. But don't get your hopes up. One of the things that you discussed in the book is, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, wassail. Um, (laughs) I
1: believe that's it. But I am the king of mispronouncing things that I've only ever read. (laughs) <laughs> on paper, so I'm not going to promise you that's right, but that's how I'm saying it.
0: Yeah. So wassail was a drink, but it was also a ceremony. What was wasailing? Okay. So the tradition
1: of wasailing basically involved passing around spiced ale, which was in a shared wooden wassail bowl. And they would be singing while passing it around and toasting to their good health. And we know that the Tudors, royal and noble, participated in this tradition because in household ordinances, they record how their servants should prepare the wassail and how and when it should be brought in and whether or not kings or queens participated in that or if it was just the court, because, you know, there's always a risk of poison when it comes to kings and queens, who knows? Mm. But the accounts sort of suggest that they did. They probably just went first or maybe they had a slightly more restrained version of it, which I think is what I suggest in the book, because there's a suggestion that they all get passed around individual cups as opposed to passing. Around this bowl, but that's probably they probably had the Spice Dale anyway. I mean, remarkably, I have learned that. Wasailing is still a thing. It's not a, a Tudor Christmas specific tradition. There might even be a wasailing group local to you, as apparently there is to me. And I would have to be very, very drunk to get involved in a communal passing of a bowl and sharing spiced ale. I'd have to have about a bowl of spiced ale before I even turned up. It terrifies me <laughs> to even think about singing in public. But, you know, they loved it back then and apparently they love it today.
0: I suppose it's a bit like a Tudor equivalent of... You're in the pub on Christmas Eve and someone gets up to sing the Fairytale in New York. You all join in. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> this I'm was
0: sure. the, Tudor, but the Tudor version. If
1: that happened today, I would cringe so bad. I would f- sort of throw myself out of a window as soon as, you know, it's, I'm just really bad at that kind of merriment. I'm, I'm just awkward. I, I, I I'm sure some of your listeners will think that we're sailing. I do that every Friday night. Of course. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> great. Go for it. But, you know, and yeah. don't invite, just don't me. involve Dr. James Taff. <laughs> yes.
0: amongst all of the food and the drink and the merriment of modern day Christmases I think it's quite easy for us to overlook the fact that it is also a very holy time of year it's ultimately a a religious celebration and for those of faith it is an incredibly important part of the year obviously those in the 16th century the, the Tudors had a much closer relationship with religion and faith than we typically do now so with that in mind could you just sort of or oh, i suppose the other thing to also take into consideration here is that christmas for the tudors was not just christmas day it was a 12 day celebration and religion played a huge part in that time can you just tell us a bit about what they observed w- what the religious aspects of christmas were like for the tudors particularly for the, the nobility in the, the royal family
1: Of course, yes, and I'm glad you said that at the end there, that little qualification, because that is generally where the evidence is. Before they had all their lovely Christmas pies, there was Advent, and that was a sort of religious observation where they would fast for four weeks and have less ostentatious foods and then sort of prepare themselves emptying their bellies, priming their appetites for Christmas. And that all led up to midnight mass on Christmas Eve, stroke, Christmas day. And the Tudors attended mass all throughout the calendar year. It was obviously incredibly important to their sort of day-to-day lives, but they attended free masses, I believe, on Christmas day. They had the midnight and then dawn and mid-morning, either privately in their privy closet or publicly in the chapel royal where they would go in procession. And that was quite an event in itself. And we know that they went to midnight mass just because an account survives of Henry VII going to midnight mass accompanied by his queen and the court. Um, Unfortunately, we don't really know the nature of that service because the chronicler who recorded it was more interested in what Henry was wearing as opposed to what the service was. So while I was digging around for some great material for my chapter on religion, I just kept coming across and he was wearing his purple circle to, and his sable furs. And I was like, okay, great. Can I have some material, please? But no, Next. they, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But you couldn't, I couldn't couldn't get any deeper in, in terms of mass. There's a great poem I included which describes mass in some ways. But that's about as far as it went for that. But there are other aspects too, like the offering. So every... Um, as you mentioned, there are 12 days of Christmas and on many of those days were feast days. So the Feast of Holy Innocence or the Feast of the Epiphany. And on these days, the Tudors, particularly the Tudors Royal, but I imagine so did the nobles, made offerings um, to their church in varying amounts. But perhaps the most important thing is that the sovereign would make an offering of frankincense, gold and myrrh. So, sort of mirroring the offerings that were made or rather the gifts that were given by the free wise men or the Magi to the baby Jesus. Um, so that, there's a little bit of correlation there and some religious observance in giving an offering, but also extending for, upon that giving as well and being charitable at this time of year and was a, generally of highest duty of the Tudors too. Mm. And attending mass was very, very important. I think the it's interesting because in letters, just in passing, they describe Christmas as this holy time. And I like that because even that doesn't add to really say very much. In a sense, it's quite obscure, but that also may, reminds us that it's not all about pageants and pastimes. It's actually incredibly important for the Tudors, as you say, as a time of religious
0: observance, too. You mentioned there about the fact that there were typically three masses a day. How would the English Reformation changed the way in which the, the Tudors celebrated christmas because i imagine that maybe not so much with henry the because i think it's one of the big misconceptions about henry the in particular is that he people would think he was a protestant and he never was and you know i think the the first true protestant king as we know is zeb the Sixth. how much of a shift was there in the way that christmas was observed following the english reformation
1: you're absolutely right that the impact of the reformation only really hits christmas during edward the reign in some ways, it tries to impact it, and it doesn't. So the council one one year decided they're not going to exchange gifts at New Year anymore. But that sort of gets lifted. That doesn't actually go ahead. Where it really does get impacted is mass and how mass looks, how mass is heard, and where it's heard and things like that. Um, Edward VI council outlawed Catholic mass. And from what I gathered, there were individuals pretty much at every level of Tudor society, you know, from Princess Mary, who was later the queen mary Judah, and um, to the commons and poorer folk who were very reluctant to surrender catholic mass they many of them refused the new service that was being told from the book of common prayer and just continued to celebrate mass as they knew it in secret and mary and her household continued to observe observe latin mass for many years afterwards which edward grew increasingly impatient about and kind of very frustrated and one christmas it kind of comes to a head and they have a bit of a fight essentially they have a bust up and he's getting a bit sick of Mary not listening to him and being really stubborn. And actually, you know, because it was incredibly important to people back then. I, I am not especially religious today, but I do have friends who are religious and my mom is also quite religious. So I understand how important faith can be to someone, particularly at Christmas. And when you read the material, you do get that impression, it, particularly, as you say, because of Mary's, I say stubbornness, I don't mean to say stubbornness. She's her her sort of, determination that she wants to hear mass the way she wants to hear it and so should her household but also when she becomes queen there is a man i think his name is john comb but i'm not sure if i'm remembering that right but there's one man returns from midnight mass during the first year of mary's reign and says basically incredibly emotionally and very sentimentally that he has thanked be to God, heard mass and received holy bread and holy water for the first time in four years. And he's just so genuinely struck with emotion. And it serves as a great reminder of, you know, it, it's to someone who is not religious, it might seem like there's no real difference between Protestants and Catholics, as in, you know, it's not really that important. As in, if it's not important to you, then why, we've modernized? how could you understand how it's important to them? But the material makes it very clear that it's incredibly important to them. And Christmas in particular was um, impacted in that sense. The only other way it was really impacted was Christmas carols, because the Catholic Christmas carols, as you go through the Tudor period, become less and less sort of popular. And new Christmas carols became more doctrinally neutral, um, unlike pre-Reformation carols, which were very distinctly Catholic and had Latin phrases and often centred on, like, you know, the veneration of the Virgin Mary or something like that. So. There are little elements which were affected, but it's important to remember the Tudors weren't Puritans, in a sense. So it's not quite affected until the 17th century in the same way that, you know. So, yes,
0: impacted by the Reformation it was, but perhaps not as much as you might expect. So chapter four looks at pageants and performance. One of the things that was quite key at this time of year for the Tudors was the Lord of Misrule. Can you tell us about what what was the lord of misrule you know what what was involved in that Sure yes probably my favorite Tudor Christmas tradition was the lord of misrule
1: and It's a pretty good gig to get. (laughs) It's a good one. Yeah, I I like it. Um, It sort of saw the very strictly hierarchical society of the Tudor court upturned because they gave a young male, usually a servant, um, this title of Lord of Misrule. And he was basically responsible for directing and producing entertainments and revels at court all throughout the festive season. And he was given full control, basically. So his imagination knew no bounds and no financial constraints. The case study I focus on in the book is um, George Ferrers, who was Edward the Lord of Misrule. Truly extraordinary material. There was, there was, <laughs> it was just so, so rich and quite funny to me actually, because it's a younger lad who's been suddenly elevated to a high status and can make all kinds of incessant demands of his seniors, particularly one senior, uh, Thomas Courten, who's Master of the Revels. And when you when you look at the material, it's a very juvenile sort of, Ferris comes across as very juvenile, a bit drunk with power. And Cowardin, I mean, he's very patient, but you can't help but think he must be exhausted because it's a constant barrage of letters of, oh, I need 26 livery coats in this colour and in this style and I need them now. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, once he's probably halfway through that order, another letter comes in and says, actually, no, I don't need 26. I need 16, but I also need uh 25 swords and shields. You know, it's it's excessive and ridiculous, but clearly intended for the for the right reasons for christmas to be fun for people to have a good laugh and yes i mean Corden had a lot more patience than i would have done (laughs) but he did help bring to get bring out a lot of these fantastic imaginative sort of mad ideas that Ferris came up with
0: it almost sounds like someone putting prince louis in charge of christmas you know it's just exactly yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i think just the correct Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the things about the Lord of Misrule as well is that all care for rank and position also evaporates. So the Lord of Misrule can order dukes and marquises around and and they they are expected to sort of go along with what's said. Was that the case? Absolutely, yes. That was
1: kind of the, the joke of it, that they could make all these demands without really having any deference. And he even had the, his own court of misrule, essentially, where other people then took on roles that were like jesters or clowns and sort of treated him like a king and, and, and created this court, which were responsible for all manner of controversy and kind of mayhem at the Tudor court. And I think that's, that was definitely the intention. If you didn't join in the spirit of it, then, you know,
0: you were doing something very wrong, basically. Your fifth chapter is all about gift giving. And unlike today, where we give out presents on Christmas Day, for the Tudors it was gift giving was on New Year's Day. And for the royal family in particular, the process of gift giving was quite formal, with with servants appearing before the king or the queen separately and presenting them with their gifts. Can you tell us a couple of your sort of your favorite stories from what you dug out? Yes, definitely. So
1: probably I would say maybe my favourite chapter to write. It's certainly the most varied. I it, when you look at the material, um, what has often survived is something called a New Year gift roll, which is what we've now termed it. Which is basically a list of people who sent gifts to the king or queen, and um, and what they sent. And sometimes you get a list of gifts that were sent from the king or queen, um, and which is generally just a lot of plate, like spoons and plates and things like that. But um, Yes, the the New Year gift exchange, it it was a ceremony, especially during the earlier years of the Tudors. And it was meant to be an occasion where not only were you giving gifts for the sense of spreading merriment and cheer, but it was about reaffirming your status. When you gave a gift to a king or queen, it was like saying, remember me, you know, and and they would remember when someone gave an impressive gift in particular. Later on in the reign, Elizabeth I, for instance, she began to have more of an expectation that she wasn't just going to get a purse of gold. She wanted to have something much more meaningful, memorable, extravagant. I tried to include as many of those examples in the book as possible. I can just recall a few off the top of my head. I think Henry Seventh one year gets a leopard, which I, I think is just brilliant, if not a total burden. And then you've got <laughs> Elizabeth I. She receives a gold um, diamond encrusted whip from one of her servants, which sounds a bit bizarre, but it was actually meant to be a symbol of his deference to her after he'd upset her by challenging her on some issue to do with marriage, I believe. So... There's loads of examples just from the New Year gift rolls alone. But then when you look at letters and sort of accounts of the ceremony, they become a little bit more colorful, a little bit more interesting. The Lyle letters are really good for this, for recreating this ceremony. And one year, um, John Hussey, who is the Lyle's agent, mm. kind of recalls the ceremony when he presented gifts. And he's kind of bragging a little bit he says the king spoke to him more than any other after presenting his gift i kind of always suspect reading it that Hussey could always embellish the truth a little bit because his master or mistress were in calais they couldn't actually call him out on what he reported and sometimes i wonder if he sort of made out he sort of made things sound better than they were at court and particularly how it was received and how gifts were received was a crucial part of it i mean there were an anxieties, as there are today, about how someone's going to like or dislike a gift, whether or not they're even going to to want it. And I think that's very relatable in the material. Very, oh. A lot of effort went into preparing the right gift. A lot of conversations happened, particularly with servants who were in a privileged position to know what their master or mistress would like. And I, I love all that kind of material. It's very human. It's very interesting to uh, draw that parallel with today. I mean, there's even a reference to someone going shopping for Mary, buying her New Year gifts. I just think, of course, yeah, we've got to do that the same today. We've got to make sure we go shopping. I wish I had a servant to send off to do my shopping (laughs) for me because I hate it. But it's amazing how many parallels you can draw between then and today, just because it was on New Year's Day and we have ours on Christmas Day is fairly inconsequential. It was the same sort of spirit in which presents were given. But at the royal or noble level, it was a game. It wasn't just about giving something because someone was going to enjoy it. It was
0: all about how it would look. And there was a lot of competition and comparison between gifts. And I think the other thing that you can also get from the New Year's gift rolls as well is it also provides you with a snapshot into the, the the changing landscape of politics at the time. You know, people who, who were in, people who were out. So for example, with my book, that my first book that I wrote uh, is, explores the, the rise and the fall of the Pole family. And Margaret Pole Campus of Salisbury was very much sort of frozen out of the equation I'm talking years before the Pole family fell, around the time that she was Mary, Princess Mary's governess. And then there was the falling out following the Duke of Buckingham's execution. And the first sense that we get that the situation is thawing with Margaret Pole is the fact that the gift that she sent to the king is not returned and, yes, def- yes. you know, so things like that. That's when you can go, right, you know, you're able to see in those New Year's gift rolls, ah, uh, okay, there is a thawing of a feeling here and and the king is willing to accept a a gift and the following year you know she margaret pole is on the receiving end of gifts so that immediately starts to tell you okay the landscape has has began to change again and so they're actually an incredibly useful way of not just looking at what was bought and who bought it but also telling you how the landscape of the politics at the time had also changed if that makes sense
1: No, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I mean, even as you were describing it, I could think of a couple of examples in the book where Either someone gets it completely wrong and they fall out of favour, or someone doesn't get a gift at all. I mean, the classic example for me um, is Catherine of Aragon not getting a gift in 1531, I think, 1531 or 1532. But basically, he Henry VIII says she's not getting a gift and no one else is allowed to send her a gift. He had taken a uh, fancy to Anne Boleyn and uh, Catherine was exiled from court. So
0: you're absolutely right. It's an indication of who was in favour and who was not. One of the other things I love about the book is that you you discuss gifts being recycled or repurposed. We've all been in a position where you go, okay, shit, I've got a party to go to. What have we got in, yes. you know, have I got a spare <laughs> bottle of champagne that I can, you know, rub the dust off and, and make it right. look like I've gone out and bought someone a gift. We've all been there and it would appear that the Tudors were no different. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about the, the hilarious story with Elizabeth I's gift? from Blanche Parry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know what, for me, it's not even a bottle of
1: uh, champagne. It's, it would be something like a sad scented candle that no one has ever (laughs) lights. You know, it always gets passed around, but the Tudors were a little bit more shameless. I think than we are today, we would at least have a little bit of embarrassment about regifting something that's plainly been in the cupboard for about four years, but gifts were often recycled and repurposed. And that was not really seen as unusual. Catherine of Aragon, in particular, there's one year where it's noted that a lot of her gifts are taken from the Queen's store. So basically, there were things that she either received in the past or were in her own personal collection, but she didn't necessarily have new plate made up for every year for new people. So sometimes, yes, gifts were repurposed, but Blanche Parry, the poor woman. Um, One year gives Elizabeth the first a jewel, like an angel of gold, I think it's described as. It sounds quite rich in the description. It sounds lovely, actually. We can only really imagine then what Parry must have thought or felt when a few moments later, like the same day, during the same ceremony, the Queen then regifts the jewel to her maid of honour, Elizabeth Brooke with modern eyes, you can't help but be horrified looking at that and thinking, what? But, you know, Parry is a silent witness. We don't really know how she felt. I like to think she must have been screaming inside because surely if you want to give a gift that's memorable and sort of heartfelt and, and actually enjoyed it wouldn't be given away moments later yeah she failed basically she, she did and she was yeah. one of elizabeth's dearest dearest gentlewomen probably her most dear so she yeah. would have known what elizabeth would have wanted i wonder if that year she just got a bit fed up and just thought oh, god's sake i'm just gonna give her this and um <laughs> but then she paid the price because then she had to watch elizabeth brooke walking around the court
0: wearing it um yeah, so, yeah. she went down she went down the tudor john lewis thought that'll do that'll do and, yeah she and dropped then the ball it, a bit it just, yeah. <laughs> so your your final chapter deals with something that a bit more serious, something that I think still affects many today around Christmas which is loneliness and sadness. It can be a whether we like it or not it can be a very depressing time of the year for some people and that was something that was evidently very much felt at, at the Tudor court as well. And I think one of the things that I suppose you know the Tudor court was a microcosm wasn't it really, you know, the way that the Tudor court acted was all defined by the mood of the king or the queen at any given time and with that in mind the celebrations at court would were either very accelerated or much more muted dependent on what was going on particularly with Henry VIII so can you describe a couple of examples i'm thinking you know of the time where where Catherine Howard is imprisoned that christmas i believe was very muted because there wasn't a queen on hand what were a couple of examples of that
1: Yes, I I, I was actually in two minds about this chapter. I wasn't sure. I was really wanting the book to be light and humorous, but I found material at the same time, which wasn't light or humorous, but actually a little bit more serious, as you say. So I was thinking, well, maybe this material will make it. In the end, it became the most interesting chapter to write because I had kind of I think it would I think some of the material will surprise people that you know we ha- it is a good reminder that not everyone was feasting and pageanting and all that at Christmas some people had a miserable Christmas starting with the Tudors yes they were ele- like there were times when they didn't enjoy Christmas and the most obvious example that comes to me is when they were in mourning particularly after the death of Jane Seymour in 1537 Henry VIII is very much His mood does set the tone and there were no festivities. It was very obvious that everyone would just wear their morning clothes and then, you know, sometime in the new year they would get to take them off. But basically, no fun and no cheer. And a few years earlier, even when Catherine of Aragon was exiled from court, her absence was very much noticed because there were no real women at court who obviously Mm. were central to the celebrations. And because the queen and her ladies were absent, people complained that there was no real mirth or happiness at Christmas. And even if Henry wanted to stage the events that year and wanted the Christmas to go ahead, the lack of a queen really was felt and very and their absence was truly felt so it's it's like you can't the company at christmas is clearly very important and some years it just wasn't quite right It was funny you mentioned Catherine howard because yeah i, I don't it's hard to because the sources are so sort of fragmentary we don't really know how Catherine was feeling um during those final months where she'd been arrested and then sort of sent to Sion abbey and sort of you know she's in custody but she's not really It's not really a prison but it but it basically is a prison and it must have been excruciating to spend christmas in 1541 basically not celebrating and just waiting to die it sounds miserable i mean she she might have been hopeful about her fate at that point maybe because they did keep her waiting a while she didn't die until february the next year it's kind of miserable really but what i would say though is that both the men had been executed by this point so it didn't good. good point no that's true she probably did and she would have known about that so you're absolutely right yeah not great it's just a lot i don't know it always bothers me how long they made her wait i mean it's not like i'm saying kill her now kill her now but it's just like that's a long time
0: to to know your fate and to wait around for it it was definitely unusual i mean so was margaret i mean margaret pole was imprisoned for nearly three years before her execution which was right also incredibly unusual i mean there was only literally between george berlin's trial and his execution was two days it was much more common for it to be very very quick but Catherine Howard, and to a much more extreme example, Margaret Pole. Yeah, yeah. Their, their long imprisonments do suggest that, I don't know, maybe maybe the, the king was not so sure about his actions, but who knows? We, no, we you might see. be right about that, I think. And and I
1: mean, at Christmas, it's just, it's just sad to think that the court is in celebration while someone waits in very, very uncomfortable conditions. I mean, they're really well described by Bishop John Fisher because he's in prison. I think it's 1534 i think he's executed in 1535 it's something like that and really he just he writes a letter to cromwell petitioning for his release but he describes in great detail how he's feeling and he's got this ragged shirt and it's very very cold and painful imprisonment he describes it and basically not very much of a diet it, he doesn't really give him give him very much food and his body's wasting away and he's coughing his guts up and it's like oh god you know he's obviously having a miserable christmas and that's just one of the examples that i came upon but it's those who were in prison obviously had family and friends who wrote to them and checked in on them and and if they didn't, then we wouldn't know how they were doing in prison and how and how they enjoyed or did not enjoy their their Christmas while waiting for their fate. And of course, some people did get let out of prison. I mean, in one year they think I think it was the Duke of Somerset there was some suggestion that he would be let out as a New Year gift. you know, I don't think he was yeah. let out at New Year. I think it was a couple of months afterwards. but yeah, there, there was hope, I suppose, perhaps
0: more so at Christmas. So final question on Christmas itself, what surprised you, I suppose, the most about the the writing process? And by extension of that, is there anything from the Tudor Christmas that you would love to see come back into into modern day Christmases? That's a great question.
1: I've already made my feelings very clear about we're sailing so you know I'm not going to say that. <laughs> um, but well, it, it sounds were, like I, what you've already said is that it's already going on anyway so It is that's true I don't I don't need to bring that back no one needs my uh, my help there. I probably have to go I've probably all on my own here but I'd have to go out and say I think the lord of misrule should be brought back. I uh, love the idea of giving full control of the festivities to a young lad who can just go mad just insane and you know london would descend into chaos once more and so it should i think that'd be great but um in terms of the writing process i mean honestly the richness of the material was the most surprising thing i honestly saw this as a blog post or an article but when i went out specifically into state papers and collections of letters and things like that i was surprised how often it was mentioned particularly in account books but also in letters of invitations and things like that so Whereas it began as a curiosity, I was very, very pleasantly surprised by the material and the nature of it, how human the Tudors really come across to me in that material. Maybe it's no coincidence because it's the festive season and people are a little bit more light and, you know, they stop working over Christmas, so they're obviously in a better mood. But I was pleasantly surprised and genuinely surprised by how much material had survived
0: thank you so much for for taking the time to chat it's been a a really wonderful episode and you know very very topical as i said given that we are now just what is it 12 13 days away from christmas can you tell us a bit about what you've got coming up next
1: right yes my next book which should have been my second publication before the christmas one became sort of dementedly sort of took over my life um is serving the tudors and that would be essentially a book all about what it was like to serve the Tudors, quite straightforwardly. But I'm covering the households from Henry VII or through Elizabeth I, and also the subsidiary households, so Anne Boleyn's household, or Henry, Duke of Richmond's household. I want to get an impression of what it was like to serve the Tudors very, very broadly. But honestly, as I'm finding the material and I'm realizing I have to make cuts somewhere and what's gonna make the cut and what's actually gonna be in, it's gonna be basically the best, funniest, most intriguing anecdotes that make it in there's a lot of material which i thought oh i find that interesting isn't that interesting Mm. that they got paid this much but you know not everyone's going to be interested in that so i'm finding basically the most interesting material about service and serving the Tudors and just packing it into one probably quite unwieldy book
0: and that's due out in the summer it should be summer 2024 yes thank you wonderful same time as my book so that's yeah, right. We'll have to, we'll have yes. to celebrate. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. A joint launch party somewhere, maybe. Yeah. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. It's it's been a really great chat. Um, where can people find you, James, on the socials? Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It really has been my
1: pleasure. I am at Tudor Taff, and that's Taff, T A W F E on Instagram and Twitter mainly. I am much. I, I try and post as much research on there as possible. I can be. Um, a little bit too generous. I know the right thing to do is to hold all your best material back and wait for the book and give people a reason to buy it. But I can't out myself sometimes. I just post as soon as I find something. So yes, if you're interested in Tudor history,
0: it's worth to follow. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure people will be really interested to hear this conversation. As I said, it's, it's just the perfect time of year for it. And thank you again for coming on the pod. Thank you. No, really, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess podcast. A big thank you again to today's guest, Dr. James Taff. Next week, I'm welcoming another guest onto the show, Becca Segovia, the creator of the enormously popular Royalty Now social media accounts for a discussion all about her process of digitally recreating some of the most famous figures from history from across the world. Thank you again for listening and speak soon.